You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we are continuing our look at abortion. Because here at Deeper Waters, normally on January, I try and devote every show to abortion. Can't say I've always succeeded at that, but I try. And I think if my memory serves, we are getting very close to a tragic day, which is the 44th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which means abortion has been legal for nearly 44 years. Of course, with a new president, we don't know what the future will hold for that, but we still have to continue the good fight. So, today I decided to have on Dr. Christopher Kazor, whose name rhymes with Razor, to talk about the issue of abortion. He's the author of the book, The Ethics of Abortion. He's also a professor of philosophy at Lord Yola, Marymount University. He's a corresponding member of the Pontifical Academy for Life of Vatican City and the James Madison Society of Princeton University. He graduated from the Honors Program of Boston College and earned a PhD four years later from the University of Notre Dame. A Fulbright Scholar, Dr. Kazor is a former Federal Chancellor Fellow at the University of Cologne and a William E. Simon Visiting Fellow in the James Madison Program at Princeton University. His 12 books include Gospel of Happiness, Seven Big Myths About Marriage, A Defense of Dignity, Seven Big Myths About the Catholic Church, The Ethics of Abortion, which we're talking about today, Orwell Ralph McInerney, Stories and Reflections on a Legendary Notre Dame Professor, Thomas Aquinas on the Cardinal Virtues, Life Issues, Medical Choices, Thomas Aquinas on Faith, Hope, and Love, The Edge of Life, and Proportionalism in the Natural Law Tradition. His views have been in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, Huffington Post, National Review, NPR, BBC, EWTN, ABC, NBC, Fox, CBS, MSNBC, TEDx, and The Today Show. Whew, that's quite an introduction. So, um, Dr. Kazor, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, if my audience hasn't heard of you, I mean, how did you get to be doing all this stuff that you're doing today? Well, uh, it started off, I guess, as an undergraduate at Boston College. I got into philosophy, and um, I really loved it a lot. And so I was thinking about, you know, how to, what to do in terms of a career after that. And I thought I'd love to be a professor. And uh, I'm also a person of faith, and so for me, faith and reason uh, really work together. They're really not opposed, uh, but cooperative. And so that's kind of been my guiding principle uh, throughout my career. And uh, I feel very, very blessed because. I really enjoy being uh, a professor and teaching, and I enjoy uh, doing research, and I also enjoy uh, chatting with people like you. So this is uh, it's, you know, a great blessing to be able to do that, and I'm happy to be here. Now, we're talking about the book, The Ethics 
of abortion. First off, before we jump into the book, we know that the 44th anniversary is coming up, and we've got a new president who's going to, who says he's going to appoint pro-life justices and such, and there's a lot of people who could be thinking that maybe this might be the time that Roe v. Wade finally gets undone. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's certainly possible. The last time uh, the court took up the issue, uh, you know, it's a closely divided court in the um, case of Casey versus Planned Parenthood. So, you know, it certainly is possible that some of the justices that have favored uh, abortion are going to uh, be off the court. You know, people like Anthony Kennedy or Justice Ginsburg. And, uh, you know, if that if that were to happen, if you were to have um, put three people on the court, it certainly is possible that there could be a very significant shift in the country's um, laws about abortion. Well, let's continue with a hypothetical, and let's suppose that abortion does get repealed, as it were, but it's made illegal again. Such Does that mean that, well, well we can all go home now, the battle, for abortion is d- uh, the battle against abortion is done, and we have won, so we no longer need pro-life apologetics? Well, if Roe versus Wade were overturned, what would happen is that abortion would be, as it was before Roe, a matter for each individual state. So what would happen, in effect, is some states like Washington State and California would have abortion more or less as it is today, and then other states like, say, Louisiana or um, maybe South Dakota would uh, have strict abortion laws the way they do in Ireland. So basically, if Roe were overturned, there, it wouldn't be the end of the discussion of the, the legality of abortion. Rather, there'd be a state-by-state um, uh, discussion about what the law should be in that particular state. So uh, certainly, if Roe were overturned, it wouldn't be the end of discussions about abortion. Well, the case you're talking about is different, though. What if there were uh, a national amendment or something that uh, banned abortion in the entire country? Um, what would happen in that case? Well, I suppose abortion would be like many other acts, um, illegal but still performed. And so there still would be uh, room, as it were, for people to um, try to persuade other people that abortion really is not in the best interest of, uh, of them and certainly not in the best interest of the human being who's developing in utero. So all that's very speculative, though. We're, we're quite, a, uh, quite a ways from any of those things happening. But, um, but anyway, that's where, that's where we hope to be someday. Let's go ahead and leap into the book. I'm thinking about how just recently my wife and I had a conversation with someone about abortion and we were saying, but I don't know what y'all's religious beliefs are with this. And that struck me as quite odd because, you know, so many times when we get into debate, it's assumed abortion is a religious issue, as if if you have a religion, that's going to dictate how you view abortion. And it, it, it has implications for religion, no doubt, but is it really proper to talk about abortion as a religious issue? Well, I think people sometimes get um, confused in that they know that many people of faith do strongly oppose religion. So think about, I mean, abortion. So think of someone like Mother Teresa. Um, you know, she was very much an opponent of abortion. For the same reason, she was very much an opponent of uh, not taking care of the poor, of uh, abandoning, abandoning lepers and such. She, she basically thought that all human beings deserved respect uh, because of her religious faith. In other words, she was animated by the principle that 
every single human being is made in God's image. But it's also the case that many, many, many people who are not people of faith, atheists, agnostics, etc., also oppose abortion. So just uh, this month, one of the most famous atheistic uh, opponents of abortion named uh, Nat Hentoff uh, died. And he was a uh, reporter for the Village Voice. He was a, a civil libertarian, um, definitely described himself on the liberal side of the spectrum, and was, as in his own description, a Jewish atheist. And yet he was very strongly opposed to abortion. And another example of this is that uh, a guy named Bernard Nathanson, who founded the National Abortion Rights Action League, and then while an atheist, changed his mind about abortion and became very strongly pro-life. So the basis for opposing abortion is the idea that all human beings, every single human being, deserves respect and basic rights and protection of the laws. And that's a principle that atheists can sign on to and agnostics and Jewish people, Catholic people, Protestant people, that's a principle that all people of goodwill can sign on to. And so abortion is no more a religious issue than is uh, stealing. So yes, it's true that the Ten Commandments forbid theft, but really any person of goodwill can understand that stealing is wrong. And in a similar way, uh, abortion is wrong not because Scripture says it's wrong or because the Pope says it's wrong, but it's wrong because it takes away the right to life of an innocent human being. And again, that is the principle that all people of goodwill uh, can subscribe to. Now, you also t talk about loaded language and how should we talk about abortion, because on both sides, isn't it possible that we can just stack the deck in the favor of our position? Yeah, I think that's right. So, if we're going to have a fruitful discussion of uh, the ethics of abortion with someone, it seems to me it helps to use language that doesn't uh, beg the question beforehand. So, for instance, some people would say, well, uh, you know, was that an abortion is you get rid of a parasite, and they think about the human being in utero as a parasite. Well, that's very much uh, begging the question, right? In other words, the abortion issue, in part at least, is about what the status of this prenatal human being is. Is is this a person with a right to live? Is it just a clump of cells, etc.? And so you can kind of stack the deck by talking about it as a uh, a parasite or even as a fetus. So fetus is a a proper medical term in a medical context, but most of the time outside of uh, a medical context, we don't talk about this being in that way. So we don't have a fetus shower, we have a baby shower. And we don't ask mothers, you know, when's your fetus due? We say, when's your baby due? So, you know, for the most part, we, we use language when talking about the unborn that reflects uh, the reality that this is a, uh, a human being. and. And so I think we can use prejudicial language to dehumanize others, and I think that is not a good idea to do. Now, one of your early chapters in this is asking the question, is afterbirth abortion ethically permissible? Now, some people might think, isn't it strange to be beginning there? I mean, don't we all know infanticide is just wrong? Well, yeah, I, I tell you, you're right. Almost everyone agrees that infanticide, killing a newborn baby, is wrong. Uh, but I said almost everyone agrees, because there are uh, some people who disagree. So, Michael Tooley, Peter Singer, uh, Orto Giobellini, Francesco Minerva, these are all people who have defended um, not just abortion, but after-birth abortion, that is, the killing of a baby after it's been born. So, what I wanted to do in my book, The Ethics of Abortion, is start there, 
with this position. Uh, because basically, everybody agrees, say that you and I have a right to live, right? Clinton has a right to live. Uh, President Trump has a right to live. Uh, everyone agrees with that. So then the question is, well, when did this begin? And everybody would agree a kindergartner has a right to live, right? Everybody would agree a five-year-old has a right to live. But when the dispute begins is about babies, right? Infants. And as I say, most people do, I think, properly recognize that a newborn baby has a right to live, but there are people who don't. So I wanted my book to be very comprehensive, so I wanted to start with that position to assess it, to say, well, are there good reasons for denying a newborn baby a right to live? And as you know, uh, in looking at the book, I think, well, no, there are really no good philosophical arguments in favor of the idea that we should be able to kill uh, babies after they're born. And so I wanted to get that established and make that very clear uh, in the book. And that's what I try to do in that chapter. I'm kind of curious if there are no good arguments behind this position. I mean, no doubt the other side thinks there are some good arguments, but do you have any idea, I mean, what would really be driving someone to even go to afterbirth abortion? Well, I think what drives people to go to afterbirth abortion is that they want to defend pre-birth abortion. And basically the trouble is um, when you look at um, abortion prior to birth, um, many defenders of abortion want to say, well, the you know, fetus is lacking this or that characteristic, which is necessary to be a person. So the fetus is, say, not self-aware or can't communicate about an indefinite variety of topics or maybe can't uh, value his or her own life. And so they say that's why abortion is okay. The fetus is lacking that. The fetus is not a person, therefore has no right to live, so abortion is okay. Mm-hmm. But the trouble is that a newborn baby lacks those characteristics too. So a newborn baby is not self-aware, right? No, no newborn baby says, well, I'm a little baby boy, or I'm a, a baby girl, or I'm black, or I'm white, or I'm in a rich family, and a poor family. They have no self-awareness. They don't value their own life. They don't even know they exist. And they also are unable to communicate in a rational way. So if it's true that the human fetus can be killed because it's lacking these characteristics, well, then it would be true that the human newborn can be killed if it's lacking that characteristics. Now, at this point, there's two ways to go. Uh, One way is to say, well, I want to be consistent. And so I'm going to be consistent, and I'm going to say it's wrong to kill a newborn baby after it's born. And therefore, it must also be wrong to kill a baby prior to its birth. Or you could be consistent in going the opposite way. You could say, well, I think that abortion prior to birth is okay. It says there's no significant difference between a baby just before it's born and a baby just after it's born. Well, it must be okay to kill a baby right after it's born. So those two positions are consistent. And so in the book, what I'm trying to do is argue that even though those two positions are consistent, that the view that it's okay to kill a baby after it's born uh, should be rejected. So then if if that's true, then we get to the view that not only is uh, post-birth abortion uh, morally wrong, also pre-birth abortion is morally wrong. I think the Catholic philosopher Peter Kraft once talked about giving a talk in one of his classes about the topic of abortion, and he made the same idea of comparing it with infanticide and such, and some uh, girls came up to him after class and said, you know, we never heard things that way, and so we've changed our minds. I said, what, you're pro-life? So? No, we're pro-infanticide. Like, you know, that's probably not the result he wanted. So then we, I, I really like your position, but I'm saying, you know, if, if 
we're going to say we have to be consistent, then if we can condemn after birth abortion, then we just have to move and show the same characteristics applied before birth. That's correct. Yeah, and I think that people really um, have an inherent uh, pull, you might say, towards consistency. Mm -hmm. You know, there's cognitive dissonance when you, know, you believe inconsistent things. And so people, I think, do, are drawn towards being consistent with themselves. And it seems to me, at least, that almost everyone has very strong views, very strong rejection of infanticide. Uh, there's very, very few people, as I say, who embrace infanticide. Yeah, I say, this is just fine. Uh, but if that's true, well, then it can't be the case that in order to have a right to live, it's necessary to be self-aware or to be able to communicate or to uh, conceive of oneself as uh, having a valuable future. None of that's necessary for uh, having a right to live. Uh, but if it's not necessary for the baby, neither is it necessary for the human being in utero. Mm -hmm. uh, we... Uh Move on from there, and you start talking about personhood summit. Now, there could be some people out there wondering, why do we need to talk about this? Because all we have to do is make the scientific case, life begins at conception, boom, we've won. But then I think that my in-laws got me an Amazon tap for Christmas. I've been using it to listen to episodes of Unbelievable, debate show I've been missing all year. And they had a Peter Singer on there versus Richard Weichart asking if a human life is intrinsically valuable, and Peter Singer, who as we know is a big pro-abortion advocate, said, I will freely grant that human life begins at conception. So, you know, if someone just did say, well, let's just go with life begins at conception, we win that, then it's done, then when Peter Singer shows up, they're already stumped at that point, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, so I guess there's two different um, arenas in which the debate is discussed. So, so this issue is discussed on a popular level, and people say, well, we don't know when life begins, and who's to say, and you know, that's a speculative matter, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, on the scholarly level, uh, most scholars don't claim things like that, because as Peter Singer recognizes, and many other advocates of abortion recognize, there's very, very good scientific evidence uh, that the human fetus is alive, first of all, and human. So why should we think it's alive? Well. We have a being that is growing, that is uh, stimulating nutrition, that has um, all the characteristics of any other living organism, and we have a being that is uh, capable of dying. But of course, only a living thing is capable of dying. So we have very, very good reason to think that the human fetus developing and growing in utero is a living organism. And then we also have very good scientific reasons for thinking that this living organism, this living being, is a human being, right? It has a human mother and a human father, it has human blood, it has human DNA, it's on the human uh, trajectory of growth. So there's basically no scientific reason at all to deny that this is an individual member of the species Homo sapiens. And basically, philosophically informed uh, scholars who debate about abortion grant that. Uh, I'm working right now on a book uh, called Abortion Rights For and Against with a scholar from England, and and she is defending abortion, but she grants me those premises, right? She grants that, yes, this is a living uh, individual, and yes, this is a human being. Uh, but what is not granted is the idea that this living human being is a person. So basically, there's a, a big divide. There are some people who advocate in favor of an ethics of inclusivity. And they say every single human being is a person. That is to say, every single human being 
deserves respect, it should be accorded equal protection of the laws, etc. On the other hand, there's people who advocate what you could call an ethics of exclusivity. And they say, well, no, people like me deserve respect and protection of the law, but some human beings, those human beings that lack characteristics I have, well, they don't deserve equal respect. But you can probably see how this ethics of exclusivity repeats a pattern that's been very troubling over centuries, where you know the in-group, the powerful group, says, well, if you're like me, you know, you have white skin, or you're rich, or you have my religion, well, then you count, and you have value. But if you're not like me, if you're different than I am, well, then you don't, you're not really fully uh, a member of the human species. You're not really fully human. You're not really fully a person. You don't deserve equal rights. And so we can do with you what we want. And every time we've ever made this sort of distinction between uh, the ethics of inclusivity and the ex ethics of exclusivity, whenever we've excluded a whole class of human beings from basic protection, I think every time we've done this in the past, we've made a horrible mistake. And so I think right now, uh, the people who defend the view that some human beings should not have basic human rights, I think they too are making a very serious moral mistake. Yeah, we've never had anyone making a case for exclusivity, and then at the end they found that they themselves were excluded, have we? That's right. Yeah, President Lincoln talked about this in terms of slavery, um, and talked about, you know, to exclude people just because of the color of their skin. But the color of your skin is something that can change, right? You could get much darker, you're in the sun a long time, or you could get much more pale because you're out of the sun for a long time. And it seems pretty random and absurd and unfair to say, well, the, the color of your skin determines whether or not you have basic rights. Mm -hmm. But in the same way, I think that your level of development and growth is ethically irrelevant to whether you have basic rights. Uh, we don't think that a, a newborn baby you know, doesn't have basic rights or has less basic rights than a kindergartner. Um, you know, we think, hopefully, that every human being deserves basic human rights. And that's really the pro-life position, that every human being deserves basic human rights, and the human being in utero is a human being, and therefore the human being in utero deserves basic human rights, including the right not to be killed by others. Mm -hmm. You know, when we ask these kinds of questions, though, about personhood, the obvious question to ask is, what is a person, then, and how is that supposedly distinguished from a human being? Well, I think there is a, a distinction between person and human being in the sense that um, even though I believe all human beings are persons, uh, I don't think that all persons are human beings. So what is the difference? Well, it's theoretically possible, and many people believe, that there are non-human persons. So let me explain. Um, people of faith. Right? Christians, for instance, believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these are not human persons, these are divine persons. Or Christians believe in angels and demons. And again, these are not uh, human persons, these are uh, angelic persons. And uh, theoretically, right, there could be space aliens. Maybe there's you know, intelligent life out there somewhere. Well, they would not be human beings, members of our species, but they would nevertheless uh, be persons. So... Um, the idea of a non-human person makes, makes perfect sense uh, and is perfectly fine. But the, the, the claim, though, that's used often to d defend abortion is that there are some human beings that are not persons. And that, I think, is wrong because every human being is alike in sharing in human nature. And human nature is rational nature. What I mean is that human beings find their flourishing in rational activity, like knowing about things, like having friends, 
uh, mm-hmm. like appreciating beauty, like being in a relationship with the transcendent. All these are things that involve uh, our rational nature. So it's a tragedy if a human child can't learn to read and write. But it's not a tragedy if a dog can't learn to read and write. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that because we have human nature, our flourishing is really undermined if we can't learn to read and write. Whereas the flourishing of a dog is perfectly compatible with being illiterate. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm thinking about how Edward Fesser said that if you see a squirrel who eats nuts, you're seeing something that's perfectly normal. If you see a squirrel that eats toothpaste, you have a problem. That's right. That's right. So this idea of having a rational nature, this is not something cooked up uh, just you know, for the abortion debate. This was way back in the philosophical tradition to Boethius, who defined a person as an individual substance of a rational nature. And I think that is a great definition of a person, and it applies to um, you know, every one of us that's listening to this podcast. It applies to uh, mentally handicapped adults. It applies to elderly people with Alzheimer's. It applies to a newborn baby. And it also applies to a human being developing in utero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm also curious on this line of a person. Where would someone like say a pet fall? And that could be something interesting to you since Peter Singer, who's very much pro-abortion, is also very much pro-animal rights. Yeah, so a pet uh, would not count as a person, on my definition, because a dog or a cat doesn't have a rational nature. Uh, nor would a pet count as a person on say, the definition of person given by Marianne Warren that involves some of those characteristics I just was talking about, like being self-aware and communicating and having a conception of oneself. So on neither view would a pet count as a person. Singer's view is uh, not that animals are persons, but rather that animals ought to be accorded some moral respect because they're sentient, they can experience pain. So for him, the relevant thing isn't the question, is this a person or not? What's really relevant is can this being suffer or not? And because animals can suffer, we need to take them into account, ethically speaking. Mm-hmm. But can't young children just out of a womb and such suffer? And if videos like the silent scream were accurate, isn't there suffering inside the womb? Uh, that's a good point. That's a good point. I haven't, I don't know, I haven't seen Peter Singer's response to those sorts of things. Um, I think with infanticide, he might say, um, it's okay morally to kill of a newborn baby in a quick and painless way, uh, like, I don't know, chopping off its head or something, whereas it would not be okay to torture a newborn baby. Um, so would abortion be okay if it was done in a painless way? He'd certainly say, yes, that's fine. If it's done in a painful way, then his view is basically that we need to always act to bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So you'd have to balance the suffering of the child who, in utero who's torn apart uh, with the possible uh, suffering of others involved, and then basically, if if it would serve the greatest happiness for the greatest number, then he could do it. What would the singer or someone like him say about people who have a condition like SEPA, where they can't feel any pain whatsoever? Well, if you can't feel any pain whatsoever, if you have no, um, uh, you know, possibility of suffering, well, then you don't count at all. Now, with older children who have chronic insensitivity to pain syndrome, uh, they would be able to not suffer physically, but suffer, you might say, mentally, right? Like people make fun of them or something. So they could suffer in that way. But yeah, if you had a, a human being who couldn't suffer at all, then on 
Singer's view that human being would count for nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Now, when we are talking about the nature of a person and such, I'm um, wondering, do you think this debate would be a whole lot better off if we could all just somehow learn to accept the Aristotelian Thomistic view of natures, which unfortunately many of us seem to have abandoned since the time of Descartes? Yeah, I'm not sure it depends, uh, the pro-life view depends on a uniquely Thomistic or Aristotelian view, in part because there are arguments against abortion that don't have anything whatsoever to do with personhood. Mm-hmm. So the most famous one of those would be the argument of a philosopher named Don Marcus, an atheistic philosopher, by the way. And he held that abortion is wrong for the same reason that killing you or me is wrong. So he said, look, why is it wrong to kill you or me? Well, what's wrong with it is if you kill me today, that means that I'm going to miss out on the valuable and great things that would have happened to me tomorrow and the next day and the next week and the next year and then all the years for the rest of my life. And that's true uh, of killing anyone who has a future like ours. So uh, that's the reason it's wrong to kill me. That's the reason it's wrong to kill you. That's the reason it's wrong to kill a newborn baby because if you kill the newborn baby, the newborn baby will miss out on you know, kindergarten graduation and going to the high school senior prom and getting married and having kids and all those great experiences in life that the newborn baby would have had if you hadn't have killed the newborn baby, the newborn baby would lose out on. So the newborn baby, in other words, has a future like ours. But the very same point can be made in terms of the human being in utero, right? The, the fetal human being has a future like ours. If not killed, then the fetal human being will you know, be born and we'll grow up and we'll get to bought, you know, birthday candles on the 10th, 10th birthday and they learn to drive a car at 16 and, um, you know, get their first job and all those great experiences that people typically have in life are taken away uh, when a human being is killed in utero. So this argument, as you see, uh, I haven't mentioned the word person at all. It has nothing to do with personhood. And so I don't think you need to have an Aristotelian or Thomistic uh, or Boethian definition of person to defend the pro-life point of view, as uh, Don Marcus's argument shows. And as I mentioned, uh, he is an atheist. This is not a religious argument that's appealing to, you know, scripture or faith or anything like that. It's appealing to uh, the intuition that it's wrong to kill you and it's wrong to kill me. And one reason it's wrong to kill us is that it takes away uh, our future. It takes away all the good things that would have happened to us. Uh, but that very same reason applies to a newborn baby. That very same reason applies to the prenatal human being. Where we can talk all this time about is what, what a person is and such, but in order, it's not really going to matter though unless we can establish that a human being is a person. So a, when, when does the personhood begin of a human being? If it, if it doesn't begin in the womb or it doesn't begin at birth, then Singer's argument, we're still a standard, looks like. So why should we believe that the human being is a person even in the womb? Well, basically, uh, in, in the book, The Ethics of Abortion, I talk about a number of different proposals as to when a human being begins to have a right to live. Mm-hmm. And we already talked about one of those, that a human being begins to have a right to live um, after a human being is born. Uh, and we talked a little bit already, too, about the idea that the human being gets a right to live right at the moment of birth. So um, 
groups like Planned Parenthood and the National Abortion Rights Action League would hold the view that um, abortion is morally fine all the way through pregnancy, but then uh, it becomes wrong after the baby's born to kill the baby. Now, I don't think this view is very consistent, in part because I don't think the idea that uh, birth is a magic moment is a very defensible way of defining who has a right to live. For one reason, uh, there's all kinds of beings that are born that don't have a right to live, right? I mean, rats are born, dogs are born, uh, they don't have a right to live. So just being born obviously doesn't give a being a right to life. Um, another problem with it is that it seems bizarre to think of location as giving someone their basic rights. Um, basic rights characteristically are intrinsic properties, not extrinsic properties. And so your location is an example of an extrinsic property. Another problem with using birth as a dividing line between those who have a right to live and those that don't is that there are cases in which a human being is taken out of the womb uh, during pregnancy uh, for fetal surgery and then put back in the womb. So if it's really true that uh, your location outside the body gives you a right to live, well, then you have this weird situation where it's perfectly fine to kill this individual human being uh, prior to their surgery. Then when the fetus is taken out of the woman for surgery, it becomes wrong and this baby has a right to live. But then when put back in utero, all of a sudden, oh, no, the right to live is gone now. If there's another surgery, oh, back to having a right to live. Well, that just can't be right. It can't be that we gain a right to live and lose it and gain it again and lose it again back and forth. I call this the episodic problem, right? Whatever it is that gives us our basic rights can't be something that we gain and lose and gain and lose and back and forth and back and forth like that. That, that makes no sense. So birth, I think, is really not going to work very well in terms of giving us the right to life. And I think most people can kind of see this. I mean, very few people actually think that it's perfectly fine to kill the baby, you know, a minute before it's born. Or very, very few people think that in the very process of being born, it's okay to kill the child because it's not fully outside the, outside the uterus yet. Um, so I think that birth itself is completely irrelevant, uh, neither necessary nor sufficient for having a right to live. Mm. Yes. <clears throat> When I think Peter Singer, in fact, even has gone and said something along these lines about this other. says that pro-lifers are certainly right about this. There is nothing magical about the birth canal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, he, he does recognize that. And many people recognize that. Yeah. That it's, that it's uh, again, many people that defend abortion recognize that. That it's, it's really arbitrary and absurd to say that your location and being, you know, an inch or two this way or an inch or two that way uh, gives you your basic dignity and your basic rights. Doesn't this also kind of lead to some problems? Like my guest last week was talking about this story, a hypothetical story entirely, of a woman driving to an abortion clinic who's pregnant to get an abortion, and she's killed in a car accident, and the person who hit her was the doctor who would have performed her abortion, and the child dies as well. In that case, he's charged with a double homicide. But had she he, she got into the hospital or wherever it was, and he performed the abortion, he wouldn't have been guilty of homicide. Right. No, that's right. Yeah, it's it's it is a bizarre thing where we do in the law recognize the rights of the unborn. They can inherit property. Uh, killing, as you mentioned, killing a uh, human uh, fetus uh, can be, lead to a charge of murder. A famous case in California was of Scott and Lacey Peterson. So 
a married couple, he murders his wife who's pregnant. Mm-hmm. He's charged and convicted of double murder, right? Right. So that is odd, right? If he were a um, abortionist and he performed an abortion on his wife, that would have been perfectly fine. So the idea that, again, many people have that the human being in need does have dignity, does have status, uh, that flies in the face of justifying abortion. In other words, I know that it's not consistent to say that abortion is fine because the human being in need has no status, but then also to say that, say, uh, you know, people should be charged with double murder in the case of killing a pregnant woman. Now, another such scenario brought up by some is that via for life isn't viable, it's not capable of surviving on its own and such. And, of course, the obvious rejoiner of this is uh, most infants and toddlers aren't really viable either in that sense. Yeah, viability is uh, completely irrelevant uh, for the right to live um, for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons is that we have cases of conjoined twins, right? Twins that are born, uh, joined together, and in some of these cases, one twin does depend on the other for continued life. And therefore, that one twin, even though the twin might be 13 years old, 20 years old, is not, quote-unquote, viable. That is, can't survive on its own, aside from the help of this other human being. But no one thinks that, oh, it's perfectly fine to murder that person because they're not really a person yet because they're still depending on, the, on somebody else's body to keep them alive. That, no one thinks that. That would that, be quite absurd. Uh, viability also is something that varies according to technology. So uh, 40, 50 years ago, a baby would be viable uh, around 30 weeks into the pregnancy. Now the, the range of viability has dropped to around 22 weeks. Uh, there are scientists working in Japan and in the United States on artificial wombs. And if they're successful, viability will begin at conception. That is to say that a human being conceived outside uh, the uterus could be gestated outside the uterus in an artificial womb and therefore be viable independent of any human help from the very beginning of life. But no defender of abortion that I've met is willing to all of a sudden give up defending abortion if, in fact, uh, viability is pushed back to conception. So viability is something that even uh, defenders of abortion really, I think, don't embrace. Mm. And then, of course, we can ask about sentience. I mean, honestly, a lot of this is making me think of Scott Klusendorf's sled analogy in the idea that uh, if a being isn't self-aware of such that, then it doesn't have that same right to life, but then we can say people are in comas and, heck, people who go to sleep every night aren't self-aware. Yeah, no, that's right. So sentience, um, the ability to experience pleasure and pain, is... um, like many of these things, neither necessary nor sufficient for uh, having a right to live. So it's not necessary in that there are people, as we talked about before, with chronic insensitivity to pain syndrome. So there are, you know, five-year-olds or whatever, three-year-olds who don't experience physical pain because of their disability. And yet, again, almost no one would say it's okay to kill uh, these human beings uh, years after they're born. Uh, On the other side, though, there are many beings that experience uh, pleasure and pain, like worms, like wasps, uh, like rats, who I'd say no one, or virtually no one thinks has a right to live. So the ability to experience pleasure and pain is just not um, relevant for your uh, basic rights. Mm-hmm. 
Now, whenever I'd like to ask about is quickening, because I know I know you're coming up this from the Catholic position, and I'm I'm a fan of Thomas Aquinas as well. But he, I think he did hold that quickening doesn't begin until the third month or so. What does quickening have to do with this exactly? Well, in uh, the law, it used to be that after quickening, uh, fetal life was recognized, and quickening basically to define it is when the woman first experiences a fetal movement, right, the baby kicking in utero. And uh, this is a sign of life in the sense of, you know, once the woman feels this, then that indicates that the uh, baby in utero is living, it's generating its own sort of motion and movement. Um, but the fact is that the child is actually living prior to quickening, right? It's just that's the first time that the, the mother uh, experiences that. So it would be a little bit like saying, um, you know, the child is alive when we first hear the child crying. Well, that's true, yeah. When you hear a child crying, that's very good evidence that the child is a living, a living, a living being. Um, but it's not the crying that is the first time it's alive. It's, it's alive prior to crying, right? And the same thing is true about quickening. So prior to the woman feeling fetal movement, the human being in utero actually is moving. It's just not felt yet by the mother. It, prior to the human being in utero having its own independent movement, it is a living being prior to that, right? So the life of the being in, in utero is really not in question, again, outside of popular discussions of abortion. Uh, the scientists all recognize that human embryos are alive. The uh, philosophical defenders of abortion recognize that a prenatal human being is a living being and a human being. So it's just sort of on the street, the sort of popular discussions where people try to deny, oh, this is not even alive. Yeah. Now, we've uh, looked at a number of arguments against the human being being a person, but at the same time, we could review all those, and we'd still need the positive case. So if you're asked, as you are right now, why should we think the human being is a person, even at conception, what would you say? Well, what I'd say is, you know, we have to first define what a person is, right? We have to define our terms. So, if we define a person, as I have done previously, that it's an individual substance of a rational nature, um, the human being in utero, the prenatal human being, is a person in that sense. So, it's clearly an individual, right? That's why we can say this is a singleton pregnancy or a twin pregnancy or triplets even, right? We can count the individuals involved. It is a substance, that is to say, you have not just a, uh, you have a, a growing organism that can take on different characteristics of growing larger and changing in this way or that way. So it's a subject of change, it's a substance, and it has a rational nature. Now, why should we think that the prenatal human being has a rational nature? Well, it has a rational nature in a way that uh, all human beings also have a sexual nature. What I mean is all human beings, right, are male or female. And... Is it true that all human beings are actually having sexual intercourse? Well, no, of course not. There's lots of times we're not. But even a newborn baby is a boy newborn baby or a girl newborn baby. In other words, they're either male or female in sex. And that's true prior to birth, right? That's why many people, prior to birth, they go in and they have the ultrasound, and the ultrasound technician says, congratulations, you, you've got a boy, or congratulations, it's a girl. right? So we know prior to birth even, that this is a male or female. In other words, the baby has a sexual nature as either male or female. And the same thing is true of a human 
uh, prenatal human being, having a rational nature. So that rational nature is not engaged yet in a rational activity, just as, say, having a male nature or female nature is not yet engaged in sexual activity until, you know, uh, puberty or after. But we do have a rational nature. And what does that mean? Well, that means that once this individual is mature enough and healthy enough, if the circumstances are right, well, they're the kind of thing that can engage in rational activity. And the fact that they're not engaging in rational activity right now uh, no more makes them not having a rational nature than the fact that, say, many people are not having sex right now means that they're not male or female in sex. Well, no, you have that from the beginning, and you only exercise it, you might say, in uh, certain occasions. But if someone maybe say, where could that mean, though, that a human being who's not rational right now, as it were, could be a potential rational person, but isn't an actual rational person right now? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that. I'd say that that a newborn baby or a prenatal human being is a person with potential, uh, not a potential person. And to be a person, to be deserving of respect, clearly it can't be that you actually have to be exercising rational activity, right? I mean, if that were required, well, then you'd have the bizarre situation where uh, it would be seriously wrong to kill you if you're awake and conscious and doing rational activity, but if you were in surgery or if you were in a deep sleep or if you were, uh, you know, had a temporary brain injury and you couldn't do rational activity, all of a sudden you lose your basic rights. So that can't be right. That can't be right. So whatever it is that makes you a person has to be some characteristic that is a lasting characteristic that you're not going to gain and lose back and forth. So in the ethics of abortion, I talk about this as the episodic problem, right? Whatever it is that gives you your basic rights can't be episodically related to you, that you gain it and lose it and back and forth. So the human being throughout life is a person with potential, therefore, rather than just a potential person. Could we also say that along those lines, it would lead to the idea that if you're more, say, intelligent, rational, logical, you're allowed to be seen as more of a human being than someone else's, so that, for instance, my, my whole work here is intellectual in nature, and let's suppose, God forbid, I was in a car accident and I suffered a brain injury, and that in, in, highly intellectual nature went out the window. I, mean, I wouldn't cease to be less of a human being because of that. Yeah, and I, I would say you'd still have a rational nature, it's just that you've been injured. And, and, and again, having a rational nature is exactly how we know um, that, say, a mentally handicapped human being is damaged and it needs help and has some health defect. In other words, it's not um, a health defect for a dog who's 10 not to be able to speak. But it is some kind of defect if a human being is 10 and can't speak. Right. And that's the difference. Well, the difference is that human beings have a rational nature. And so if we're unable to speak when we're 10 or we're unable to speak after a car accident, we say, oh, my gosh, something's wrong, right? We're not functioning the way we ought to function. Yeah. And what is that judgment made in virtue of? Well, it's made in virtue of the kind of thing we are, the kind of nature we have, right? And the doctor might say, well, by 10 years old, the child should be able to speak. There's something wrong. And the nature, in other words, helps us determine what healthy functioning is versus unhealthy functioning. And so we have a rational nature. In other words, when we're mature and functioning in a healthy way, we're able to do this activity. And if we can't do that, that activity, right, if we're injured or we've got a mental handicap or whatever, 
well, then we know that we're injured or we have a, a mental handicap in virtue of uh, having a rational nature. In other words, it's precisely because we're the kind of thing that can and should exercise our rationality that if we can't, we are able to diagnose a serious problem. And again, the fact that a dog or a cat or a worm doesn't speak uh, at 10 years old is not a problem. We say, well, that's, it's a, not in the nature of a worm to be able to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my wife and I take these kinds of things pretty seriously. We both have Asperger's, actually, so we understand what it means when it's about things being wrong there. But, um, I, I think what you're getting at is kind of like saying that when we meet a human with some problems, be they genetic or, or brain damage or whatever, that's keeping them from functioning the way they normally would. If we could remove, remove a problem somehow, then lo and behold, that person would be able to function properly. But if we take a dog or a cat, we can remove as much as we want to. The dog or cat is not going to be able to rationalize things like a human being, as they need some addition to their nature to do that. Yeah, well, the, the word you use there, I think, is, is a great way to think about it. You said, you know, if you have someone who has a mental handicap or whatever, you could remove the problem. Right. So the reason we think it's a problem is that we recognize that their nature is not functioning the way it should be functioning. Right? In other words, we don't come across a dog who can't speak and say, oh my gosh, there's a big problem here. Right? Dog can't speak. We say, oh yeah, dogs, that's just the way they are. They, they're not the kind of thing that does speak. Right. When it, you have a human being, right, a 20-year-old who can't speak or can't learn to write or is behaving as if they're a dog, that's a problem. You say, oh my gosh, there's something really wrong. Look at how so-and-so is behaving. They, they must have had a stroke. They must have had some uh, brain injuries. There's a real problem here. So that, that very analysis of um, how someone could be having a health problem in terms of a problem uh, suggests the idea that we do, in fact, in medicine and in common sense, acknowledge that different kinds of things have different kinds of natures. And that's why, you know, for a human being to be in the backyard uh, howling at the moon and burying bones and sniffing dogs' butts, we say, well, there's a problem here. This guy's really messed up. Yeah. yeah. Well, because they're not a dog. If we see a dog doing those things, we say, oh, yeah, it's a dog. That's what dogs do. It's their nature. Perfectly fine. Yeah, I don't think about the way that we're usually social animals, and as I said, my wife and I have Asperger's, so we're not always like that. So it's perfectly normal for me to go through a checkout line at a grocery store, so for instance, and actually not say a word the whole time, and maybe just use motions or things like that to indicate what I want, or on my head, things like that. And when I leave, I'm sure some people would say, well, I wonder what's wrong with that guy. I wonder what's going on with him. But if I brought, say, a pet cat with me, and the cat stayed silent and ignored everyone the whole time, no one would look and say, well, I wonder what's wrong with that cat. What was going on there? Exactly, exactly. Now, you uh, give some uh, objections to the idea that a uh, humans have a moral status, I'd like human embryos, I'd like to look at some of these. One of them is the acorn analogy. I believe that's the idea that, you know, when we talk about an acorn, no one looks and says an acorn is an oak tree. That'd be ridiculous. You don't say, oh, look, that squirrel just ate an oak tree. In the same way, we shouldn't say an embryo is a human being. Right, right. Well, the judgment that an embryo is a human being, uh, an individual member of the human species, is not like saying uh, an acorn is an oak tree. So, 
you're not saying that the human embryo is an adult, right? You're not saying the acorn is the oak tree. Um, a human embryo is a human being in the very early stages of development. And so it's not an adult yet, and no one's claiming that a newborn, uh, I mean, a human embryo is an adult or a newborn baby is an adult. So at issue is not the stage of development. Everyone recognizes that an embryo is an early stage of human development, and a baby is a little less early, but still an early stage of development. And then a you know 30-year-old person is fully mature in terms of development, and the 90-year-old man is you know getting to the end of human life. That's not at issue. And at issue is the judgment that this is a human being. And again, there's really lots of uh, scientific agreement that this is a human being. So that's not really in dispute. What's in dispute, as they say, is should this human being be granted basic human rights like all other human beings have? Or do we have a special exception that almost all human beings have basic human rights? But in this case, we say, well, no, no, these human beings don't. These human beings don't have basic human rights. And that's really an ethical question. Uh, the scientific question of when does a human life begin is something that we can appeal to biology and science to, to determine. The ethical question is, should all human beings be accorded basic rights or not? Mm. Okay. Well, when we look at the next one about size, in my wife definitely married a nerd. I am about five foot seven and 120 pounds, which means definitely by size, I'm not like most guys my age and such. You know, it, and I would think if size is a criteria, then it would seem like someone like Andre the Giant was a whole lot more human than the rest of us ever are. Yeah, the idea of size basically is that, uh, you know, somebody will say, well, the embryo is so small, right? It's just like a, a dot at the end of the sentence. And that, that can't be equal in value to me. But I think on reflection that uh, size is really irrelevant to the basic value or the inherent dignity of a human being. We don't say, uh, you know, that the bigger you are, the more valuable you are. And so if you're, you know, an NBA basketball player who's seven feet tall or you're an NFL football player who weighs 300 pounds, you're a lot more valuable, you know, than a kindergartner is or a three-year-old is. Um, your size is just completely irrelevant for your moral worth. If, if human beings were uh, microscopic in size or as big as Mount Everest in size, uh, none of that would change their basic uh, moral worth. What's, what's, what's relevant is what kind of thing you are. Or um, Don Marquise's argument, what's relevant is whether you have a future like ours, uh, not your size. Yeah, a couple of months or so ago, Sometimes in the past couple months, my wife and I were looking at Netflix trying to find a movie to watch, and she saw Honey, I Shrunk for Kids, which she hadn't seen for a couple of decades. And it would be a bit crazy for us to assume as soon as the kids get shrunk down, all of a sudden their moral value just gets shrunk down with them. Yeah, no, that, I think that's absolutely right. Um, again, that, that's a, a good example of size just being... Uh, irrelevant. I mean, imagine another way to think about it is imagine if uh, aliens from another planet land on Earth, and the aliens are enormous, right? They're all, you know, 3,000 feet tall, and they're just absolutely huge. Well, we would, in relationship to them, be absolutely tiny, right? We'd be microscopic. Well, does that mean that they can just do anything they want with us? They can kill us? It's perfectly fine? Well, presumably not, right? Presumably the fact that we're so much smaller than they are is irrelevant. And in fact, the fact that we're smaller and more vulnerable than they are, that would suggest 
that maybe they should take special care of us. Maybe they should look out for us. In other words, typically at least, the fact that, say, a newborn baby is very small and vulnerable and dependent is not taken as a sign that, well, therefore, you know, it's open season, do anything you want to to a newborn baby. Rather, the smallness and the dependency of the newborn baby is taken as reason to care for it and to help the newborn baby to grow. Issue that's raised, and this one before we start explaining the problem, I'd like you to kind of explain what's really going on because a lot of people might not really know about this, and that's the issue of twinning. I mean, what exactly is twinning? So, early in pregnancy, it can happen that one human embryo splits, and then uh, two human embryos continue to develop after that point. And if that happens, then we have, you know, down the road. Um, identical twins that are born, right? So fraternal twins, by contrast, arise from two different eggs that are fertilized. But identical twins arise because one egg that's fertilized splits early in the first two weeks of pregnancy. And so some people criticize the idea of person that I put forward, that a person is an individual substance of rational nature because they say, well, if twinning is possible, we don't know whether or not there is an individual yet. Right? There could be an individual, there might be two, there might be three. We don't know. And so there, we can't say there's an individual substance of a rational nature. I think the response to that is to say that this is confusing uh, being an, in, an individual with being indivisible. Right? So those are two different things. So take a, take a car, for instance. Right? I, have, I have a single car, and that is an individual car. But you could imagine deconstructing the car, dividing the car up. And so the car is both an individual, but is also not indivisible. You can divide it. So the fact that an embryo can divide does not mean it's not an individual. And this is seen in the natural world in terms of uh, tapeworms. So if you take a tapeworm and cut it in half, it can give rise to two different tapeworms. But before you cut the single tapeworm in half, you wouldn't say, well, I don't know whether there's a tapeworm here. It might be one, it might be two, it might be three, it might be four. Well, no, there's one now. And if you do cut it in half, well then, after that, there'll be two. But the fact that you can cut it in half and it gives rise to two doesn't mean that there's no individual there to start with. But aren't there some cases of twinning where the embryo splits in two and then it comes back together again and forms one embryo again? Uh, yeah, that can happen. And it can happen that you have fraternal twins, so two different embryos that are conceived with two different sperm and then um, they can combine too. So in a case like that, what happens is that one, uh, as it were, absorbs the other one, and then you end up having just, just one baby that's born. So at the beginning of life, you have these, these odd or unusual things that, uh, you know, it doesn't happen later in life, but, but none of that's reason for thinking that there's not a living human being there. Um, None of, those, none of those things are relevant, really, to the idea of whether or not this individual has a right to live. I mean, if you had, this is a sci-fi idea, but I mean, you can imagine adults who had similar things. There was an episode of Star Trek where, uh, I think it was Captain Kirk and Spock um, got into that transporter thing, and then the transporter malfunctioned, and they ended up getting fused together. Well, you wouldn't say it would have been perfectly fine to kill Spock and Captain Kirk before they got into the transporter, or it's perfectly fine to kill them after the one unified being comes out. Uh, these are weird things that happen, and you know, but none of that undermines the, the pro-life view. I'm also thinking of the, my, being the fan of action 
superhero things and such. For instance, in X-Men, I think there was a character called Multiple Man who could make clones of himself, and in the series of Flash, there was a villain called Multiplex who could do the exact same thing. And it would raise the objection where if a person did clone themselves and was capable of doing that, does that mean the clone is less human or the original person is less human? Yeah, well, if cloning takes place, I don't think that that makes the, the being less human. I mean, cloning, if it, if it ever takes place with human beings, and I guess there's reports that it has already. But in any case, what cloning is, is uh, a kind of artificial version of uh, twinning, right? So your clone would be your identical twin brother, just a lot younger, right? So there's no, just as with identical twins, it's not as if, well, they're not really persons, they're not really human beings, um, cloning is just an artificial ver version of what happens naturally in terms of twinning. And so uh, cloning wouldn't bring about uh, you know, anything morally different than identical twins already do bring about. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. My guest this week is Christopher Kazor. We're talking about his book, The Ethics of Abortion. But if you're here next week, I'm bringing in another friend from the Krishna Projects Alliance, and that's Brian Johnson, and we're going to be talking about, yes, again, abortion. Like I said, this is a month to uh, devote to abortion, so I hope you'll be here next week for that. But now, let's get back to Christopher Kazor. Now, I'm going to give an argument that's usually presented to those of us who are people of faith. So, it is kind of a religious argument. It's usually said, well, if you're so opposed to abortion, you should know that with all the miscarriages and such, that God has to be the biggest abortionist of all time because so many embryos die in the womb. Yeah, so this argument um, hinges on a couple assumptions that I think are, are pretty questionable. So one would be um, the assumption that uh, many people put forward that you know half or 75% of newly conceived human beings end up uh, spontaneously aborting. Uh, I'm very skeptical about that. I, I don't think we, we have any reliable information of exactly uh, how many of these spontaneous early abortions take place. Because in some cases, it may be that there is not actually completed fertilization, right? That something has gone wrong in the process of bringing about a new human being. And so really, there was no new human being to start with. But the other factor to, to consider is that, at least from a Christian perspective, um, we know that God does allow evil, um, but always for a good purpose. And so we don't attribute to God that God is actually choosing this or actually causing this or making these bad things happen. It's rather that God allows those things. And then, well, why would God allow that? Well, I don't know. I mean, this is a big and a very different philosophical question than the question of abortion. Why does God allow any evil? Right? Why does God allow newborn babies to die? You know, in many countries... You have half of newborn babies who die from malnutrition and all kinds of problems. Uh, why is it the case that there are people murdered? And, and, you know, that's a good question. So, I mean, but it is a very different question. And to get into the metaphysics of, you know, why God allows evil is a great question, but I think it takes us very far from the core topic that we're talking about now. I mean, whether, you know, in some times and places... Again, half of newborns die, but, but virtually no one says, well, therefore, newborns don't really have a right to life, and it's no big, no big problem. So I, don't, I think the problem of evil is a significant challenge to religious belief. 
but I don't think it poses any special difficulty in terms of the ethics of abortion. And we also know as Christians that God is in charge of life and the source of life, and no one is owed life, so if he wants to take a life, he can take a life. He doesn't owe that to anyone else. We're not in that same position. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, uh, you know, if if someone through in a natural way, you know, has a heart attack or something, I think everyone can recognize that's extremely different than, you know, taking out a knife and stabbing someone in the heart, right? I mean, we're responsible for our own actions vis-a-vis others. And the fact that things happen in nature uh, obviously can't be a grounds for saying, well, this happens in nature, so I'm, you know, it's perfectly fine for me to do this as well. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people also who try and conflate the abortion issue with uh, contraception issue. Now, I know Protestant and Catholic people who, who disagree with abortion will differ on this, but they're not really the same issue exactly, are they? Well, no, no, they're, they're very different issues. So, uh, abortion is the intentional taking of the life of a human being uh, prior to birth. So, it's in the seal of killing. Contraception, by contrast, is not about killing at all, right? The whole idea of contraception is that you're acting contra, that is against, conception, right? So successful contraception prevents a new human being from coming into existence. So there just is no human being. And if there is no human being, of course, there's no human being who can be killed or or lose his or her life. Contraception is, I think... uh, you know, an important issue, but it's just a very distinct and different issue than abortion. This next one here also, it's one that I remember someone giving to me once, I talked about, you know, that human beings are the size of cells as embryos, but they are growing, I mean, I remember her scratching her hand and saying, look, skin cells falling off of those human beings, and then, of course, uh, Someone like Carl Sagan once when presented with a statement like this said, so is masturbation now mass murder or what? Yeah, I think those are, those are really silly arguments. I mean, uh, skin cells are parts of other human beings, right? They're parts of another organism. They're not whole individual human organisms themselves. So the argument is not that every human cell deserves basic respect. The argument is that every human being deserves basic respect. And a human embryo or a human fetus is a human being. Mm-hmm. Human cells, by contrast, are not human beings. So there's no need to say every cell has a right to life, whether that cell is a sperm cell, an egg cell, or a skin cell. So it's, it's just a kind of silly argument that's confusing um, being a part of a human being, an individual cell of a human being on the one hand, versus being a individual human being on the other hand. This next one, admit, it, it's... I think it is pretty difficult for some people to answer because we do see the emotional appeal of it. Best to imagine being in a scientific lab where they keep embryos in a kind of a cryogenic state where they're frozen. <laughs> a fire breaks out. You can get a petri dish that has, say, 10 embryos in it out of a building, or you can get the janitor out of a building. But you can't get both. Now, if you believe that an embryo is a human being, and you go for a janitor instead, well, you're obviously being inconsistent, aren't you? Uh, yeah, th- this, this argument I don't think uh, works very well either. And for one reason, um, there's a difference between the ethics of killing on the one hand and the ethics of rescuing on the other hand. Mm-hmm. So let's t- pose a different case. Um, I can either rescue 
um, a single newborn baby, or I can rescue, uh, you know, three human beings that are 105 years old. Right? So let's say I choose to rescue the three human beings that are 105 years old. Well, does that mean I think babies don't have a right to live? Well, no, it doesn't mean that at all. Or let's say I choose uh, to rescue the baby because I say, well, the baby has a long life and the people that are 105 are going to die soon. Well, does that mean I, I don't think that the 105-year-olds have a right to live? Well, no, that's not true either. Or to take a different rescue case, let's say uh, in, I can rescue 10 children uh, that I don't know or I can rescue my own daughter. Right. Well, let me tell you, if there's a burning building, I'm rescuing my own daughter. Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I expect that if the parents of you know one of the kids in the other room did the same thing, I wouldn't hold it against them. Right. But does that mean that, oh, I think that 10 other children don't really have rights and it's fine to kill them and they're not really human? And Well, no. It just means that I think it's fine for a, a father to rescue his own daughter or you know a mother to rescue her own son rather than other people's kids. So... This shows, I think, very clearly that you can think that you should rescue one being rather than another and not hold that that's a denial of the basic human rights of the other group that you're not rescuing. Mm -hmm. Another consideration is this. If you're rescuing one grown human being rather than ten embryos, another factor in favor of rescuing the one grown human being would be this. Many human embryos do not survive the dethawing process. Many human embryos, even if they're implanted, don't actually implant. Many human embryos, uh, even if they're implanted and begin to grow, end up miscarrying. So the fact is, you know you can save one life, the one grown human being, if you get them out. You only have the possibility of saving these other lives. And that possibility very well may not be realized. So it seems like if you weigh a certainty versus a possibility, certainly saving one person's life versus maybe saving some other lives, it makes some sense, at least, to consider that we should rescue the life that we know we can save rather than try to rescue the lives that we may or may not be able to actually save. Uh, and, and yet another difference is this. Imagine you have, in the one room, you've got the Pope or the Prime Minister or the President, and in the other room you have ten ordinary citizens. You know, which one do you rescue? Well, I can imagine some people saying, and you might disagree, but some people saying, well, look, it's really important to rescue the President, right? And I know... If, for instance, there was a bomb that was going to go off and the Secret Service could either save the president or save 10 regular civilians. I know the Secret Service would save the president. Why? Well, because they recognize that the president has a role in society that's extremely important and that if the president dies, it could cause you know, major wars, it could cause all kinds of problems. Whereas it's very sad, of course, if 10 regular people die, but you're not going to have the sort of geopolitical big problems if the 10 people die, rather, where you could have it if the president dies. So, in an analogous way, an adult has an established relationship with many other people. An adult would have duties to other people to discharge. An adult has plans that they're formulating. So, there are, there are these things that make it valuable for saving uh, an adult that the human embryo wouldn't have. Right? Human embryos don't have duties. They don't have responsibilities to their own kids and their own family, etc., etc. So, all these considerations make it... Uh, not crazy and, and, and make a lot of sense to save the grown human being rather than the human embryos. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about saving your own daughter. Now, my wife and I don't have kids yet, but I was saying if it was a burning building and it was my wife and 10 other women, I'm getting my princess out of there first thing. 
And even if we took it to a human level, if it was a burning building and our cat wasn't there and I could get that one or ten other ones, I'm going for ours first. I mean, it's not that I don't care about the others, it's just those are ones that I'm much more invested in and such. Yeah, and that, that point actually helps also explain why uh, it makes sense to rescue the adult. So in other words, the adult has already received an investment from many people, right? There are their parents, the teachers, all kinds of people. And so even if it wasn't you personally who made the investment, there, there is a huge human investment that every adult, you know, has been made in every adult. Whereas with the human embryos, uh, they've been abandoned. And that's why they're human embryos in a lab, that they are not actually, you know, cared for and invested in, etc. So that also seems to be a relevant characteristic. All this, again, is not about who can, you know, killing people. This is about who to save. And unfortunately, there are situations, you know, where you can't save everyone. And if you can't save everyone, you've got to choose. And it can be hard to figure out exactly what, you know, who you should save and what the relevant principles are. But it seems that some of the relevant principles are, you know, what's the role of this person in the community, right? So we save the president before we save a regular person. Um, does this person have serious responsibilities that won't be taken care of, right? So, for instance, I have uh, kids, and if I were to die, you know, my kids wouldn't have a father anymore. Well, that seems like a relevant consideration if it came down to save me or save someone without kids. I mean, obviously, we share exactly equal human dignity. We have an equal right to live, which means no one should kill, intentionally kill either one of us. But it seems to me, if, if I have to choose between rescuing, you know, uh, a woman who's a mother and is taking care of, you know, five little kids, or a woman who doesn't have any kids, well, it seems like it makes sense to save the woman who's got the five kids to take care of, right? She's got these serious responsibilities. In any case, this is all about rescuing. At, at, at issue in abortion is not rescuing. At issue is intentional killing. Now, these have generally been kind of like, for the most part, more popular arguments. But we know there are some more serious scholarly arguments in favor of abortion, and one of them is, and if you've listened to this show, you've heard it talk about several times, but we're going to bring it up again, the violinist analogy. Now, could you explain for the audience what the violinist analogy is exactly? Sure. The violinist analogy was first put forward by a philosopher named Judith Jarvis Thompson, and she proposed in her article, A Defense of Abortion, the following analogy in 1971. She said, imagine you wake up in the hospital and you look over and you uh, see these cords running between you and this other person in the bed. And in comes the doctor and says, well, I have um, news to tell you. Um, you have been connected up to a famous violinist. And the Music Lover Society wanted to rescue this violinist. The violinist is having trouble with their, you know, organs. And so uh, basically, you know, needs to be hooked up. The violinist needs to be hooked up to you for about nine months. And, uh, you know, this violinist is a person. This violinist has a right to live. And so I'm sorry, but you're going to have to be hooked up to the violinist for the next nine months. And Thompson says, well, even though it would be very nice for you to be hooked up to the violinist, there's really no duty to remain hooked up to the violinist. In other words, you wouldn't do anything wrong if you were to detach yourself from the violinist. And so, in an analogous way, the woman who finds herself attached to the prenatal human being does not do anything wrong in detaching herself from the prenatal human being. Um, it would be great, it'd be very nice if she wanted to, to stay attached and allow nine months to go by and then the 
the baby to be born, but she's not doing anything wrong in detaching herself from the prenatal human being. So the basic idea is an analogy that just as it's fine to detach yourself from the violinist, so too it's fine for the pregnant woman to, to detach herself from the human fetus. We really let the argument sink in. Because <clears throat> I remember hearing about one Catholic philosopher saying when he first heard this argument, he was driving down the road, and he nearly had a car accident in reacting to the argument because at first glance, it is a very powerful analogy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would say that it is, uh, there's a reason that this article is the most, um, one of the most reprinted articles in all of philosophy. That is to say, it's used in many, many different books and courses and stuff, and I use it every semester because I think it raises interesting questions, and it is a very thought-provoking kind of analogy. It is an analogy, Sarah, and obviously you don't agree with it, so I mean, it, it sounds persuasive to a lot of people. What's exactly wrong with this analogy? Well, I think there's a number of things wrong with it. Um, the first thing that's wrong with it is that there is uh, a big difference between someone getting hooked up to uh, a violinist who's a stranger to them, on the one hand, versus the very serious responsibilities that all parents have to their own dependent, vulnerable children. So we don't have any serious responsibilities to strangers that we don't know. So the person hooked up to the violinist presumably doesn't have any responsibilities to them. By contrast, a mother and a father do have very serious duties to help their own biological children. And this is true whether or not they sought to conceive the children. So you can imagine a, a, a man who uses uh, a condom and uh, you know, sperm jelly and you know, the woman says she's on the pill and he does everything to avoid conception. But if he does conceive a child, right, if he becomes the father of a child, he has serious moral and ethical legal responsibilities, right? He has to pay child support. He has to, you know, be, he can be, even be forced legally to support the child. And the reason is very clear that to be a father involves taking on very serious duties towards your own vulnerable, dependent son or daughter. And that's true for men, but it's also true for women. So even if it were true that, that there's nothing wrong with detaching yourself from the violinist, uh, it would remain true that a woman who is, uh, you know, has a child in utero would have a serious responsibility to her own son or daughter. One objection that Beeson would say, where, yeah, okay, a couple try and conceive, but in this case seems more like a rape. Uh, I mean, does the woman really have a responsibility then in the case of rape? Yeah, so Thompson's argument, she hopes, is going to work not just for rape, but in all cases. But even in the case of rape, it seems to me that the violinist analogy still doesn't work. And uh, let me suggest a different reason now. Mm -hmm. One reason, well, one huge difference between the violinist analogy on the one hand and the case of uh, abortion on the other is that in the case of the violinist, what happens is you're detaching yourself from the violinist. In other words, you're like snipping the cords that connect you to the violinist, and then the violinist ends up dying of his own underlying disease. By contrast, in abortion, there is an intentional act of ending the life of the human being in utero. So it's not as if the human being in utero dies of you know, their own underlying immaturity or illness. It's that there is, at least for the abortionist, an intention to destroy the life of the human being in utero. And so that is 
very, very different than the violinist analogy. And if we think about rape, rape obviously every person of good will condemns, condemns rape in every case. But abortion really is not a very just response to a rape. So it would be a little bit like, uh, you know, you punch me in the face and I'm so angry with you, I go and punch somebody else in the face. Well, yeah, I get the idea of going after your attacker, the person who, who did the bad thing to you, but the human being in utero is totally innocent. It had nothing whatsoever to do with this. And in fact, the woman who gives birth in the case of rape really contradicts the, you might say, the moral maxims of the, woman, or of the man who raped her. That is to say, what did he do? Well, he imposed himself with violence to the detriment of her. But what does she do if she gives life? Well, she refuses to use violence. And rather than harming someone, she ends up helping someone. Right? What did he do to her? Well, he took away her freedom. But a woman who gives birth in the case of rape is actually giving someone else freedom. What did he do to her? Well, he was doing an act of grave injustice, harming someone in a very, very serious way. But a woman who gives birth in the case of rape is doing just the reverse. She's doing an act of great generosity and kindness and charity to someone in need. So I think in nothing can undo a rape. We can't go back in time and make it not happen. But a woman who gives birth in the case of rape is someone who really does act in a way that couldn't be more different than the way that the rapist acted against her. I'd like to remind everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is listener-supported. I'd really appreciate if you'd be a part of that. Please go to my website, it's deeperwatersapologetics.com, and on the side you'll see a link that says Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now, there's a link in that little paragraph there, and that takes you to the Ministry of Risen Jesus, the Ministry of Mike Lacona. You've gone to the right place. If you listen to the show regularly, you know those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make your donation. My mother-in-law is a financial guru. She's, a, she's an accountant specializing in clergy taxes and such. So she will, she will find out about it. And know that donation's been made and if you want to make sure we get it you need to notify her or Mike or me or Ari and let me said hey I made a donation I want to go to Nick Peters I want to go to Deeper Waters if you don't do that they're just going to assume it's for Risen Jesus but if you say it's for us they set it aside for us and your donation is of course tax deductible you can also go on Amazon and buy books I've either written or co-written written would be my book the ebook a Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian. And Coven would be books like Defining Inerrancy, or Christian Answers of This Generation's Questions, or God and Natural Disasters, a debate I had with an atheist on a problem of, lo and behold, natural disasters. Now, another way you can donate to us is, guys, I'm, I'm not sure how many of you have latched onto this secret, but Valentine's Day is coming and a lot of women really like jewelry. And you can go to the uh, premier jewelry store linked to our site. My friend Lena Klester runs that and you make, a, you make a purchase and get in touch with me and let me know about it. Whatever you purchase, 25% of that goes to Deeper Water. So guys, if you want to get your ladies something for Valentine's Day, which is coming up, and trust me guys, you want to have something for your wife for Valentine's Day. If you value breathing, have something for your wife for Valentine's Day. And 
if it, it isn't Valentine's Day, if, if it's any other time where you can follow my advice, you can get a gift that will make up for that screw-up that you just recently did with her, or you can get a gift as insurance for that screw-up that you know you're going to make in the future. Now, Dr. Kazor, do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, not really. I mean, I, you know, not a personal thing, but I guess, uh, you know, I think it'd be great if people could donate some money to Catholic Relief Services. What they do is really help people in need, you know, disasters strike and, you know, hurricanes and things like that. And then they go in and provide, you know, their necessary care. So this is, I, I mean, I don't, it's not my personal organization. It's just an organization I try to support and I think is, does good work. But, but yeah, they could um, support Catholic Relief Services if they just go online. There's online ways to, to donate to that. Okay, I just did a lookup for that, and that's uh, crs.org, right? Uh, that sounds right, yeah. Now, when we go back to Judith Jarvis Thompson, there are some women who make the analogy and say, wait, you know, I consented to have sex, but I did not consent to pregnancy. What do you think when you hear that? Well, I think there'd be a lot of men who say the same thing, right? I consented to sex. I did not consent to pregnancy. And so the fact that you're having a baby and I'm the father of that baby is irrelevant. I shouldn't have to pay child support. I don't have any moral duties to be a good father and to you know look after my own child. Uh, that's just tough luck for you. And you know, good luck with that. But I, I consented to have sex with you. I did not consent to become a father with you. I, I think it's kind of like this bizarre idea we think that we should be able to control reality, Ms. Rakers, ain't there is actually this connection between sex and childbirth. It's like saying if you're dating a girl and she has mono and you kiss her, you can say, well, I consent to kissing her, but I didn't consent to getting mono. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say, you know, when there's another human being in the, in the, question, in, in the picture, right, when there's this vulnerable uh, human being that is a very immature you know, what's really relevant uh, for people of goodwill is to take care of this child. And, you know, we have uh, every every child has a mother and a father, and they're the ones, if they're people that are going to do their parental duties, who have a serious responsibility to do their best to, you know, raise this child up and take care of this child. And really, the whole future of society depends on <laughs> this taking place. I mean, if, if our mothers and fathers refuse to do this, I mean, we wouldn't even be capable of, you know, institutionally supporting uh, the children and, and having the human race continue. So, so I do think that there's a very serious uh, responsibility of, of mothers and fathers to take care of their own children. I like that you have a whole section here also on hard cases for critics of abortion, because even if we do agree eventually that abortion is a great evil and such, that doesn't mean we ourselves don't have any hard cases. And we've talked about rape, for instance, and incest could be the exact same scenario in many cases. What about, for instance, and this is when it's about like an abortion that would be done to save the life of a mother, and this would include such as an ectopic pregnancy. Yeah, so I think that to handle cases like this, we need to talk about something called double effect reasoning. And double effect reasoning is used in cases where you have one action, that brings about a good effect and a bad effect. Um, so the, a classic case to illustrate double effect reasoning would be when a woman um, is pregnant and she discovers she has cancer of the uterus. And the doctor comes to her and says, well, if you don't remove the uterus now, the cancer is going to spread and you'll die. 
On the other hand, um, if you uh, if you you know remove the uterus right now, the baby is too immature, and the baby's going to die. So, at first glance, someone might think that either way. Either thing the woman does, she's doing something wrong, right? If she does not remove the uterus and the cancer spreads, well, she's committing suicide, and suicide's wrong. If she removes the uterus and um, to stop the cancer, well, then the baby's going to die. She's getting an abortion. I think that, that in fact, either option is, is morally permissible. So uh, well, how do I come to this conclusion? Well, an action is permitted to be done that has two effects. If the action itself is not morally wrong, and the bad effect is not chosen as a means or as an end, but rather as a side effect. And thirdly, that there's a serious reason for allowing the evil effect. So, in the case of removing the uterus, the action itself is not intrinsically evil. In other words, there's nothing wrong with removing a cancerous organ from your body to try to save your life. That's perfectly fine. In fact, she would do it even if she weren't pregnant. It has nothing to do with the baby. Secondly, the death of the baby in this case is not a goal. It's not the means or the end. Again, she would remove the uterus even if she were not pregnant. The death of the child is a side effect. And thirdly, she has a serious reason for allowing the evil effect, namely that she is uh, saving her own life. Now, the same reasoning would also justify not removing the uterus. So she could say there's nothing wrong with um, not having a medical procedure in order to save the life of your child. Right? That's fine to do. And her death is not the goal of her not getting the uterus removed. Her goal is simply and solely to allow her child to live. And is there a serious reason for allowing her own death? Yeah, to save the life of her child. So in a case like that, really either action is permissible. She may remove the uterus or she may keep the uterus. Uh, either one is okay. Neither one is seriously wrong. And I think double-effect reasoning can be also used to explain all other cases in which the life of the mother is endangered. In any of these cases, she may do a medically legitimate procedure that has as a side effect, an unfortunate side effect, the death of the child in utero, and there's a very serious reason for allowing that, namely to save her own life. So the, another way to put this would be, I'm not aware of any case in which intentional killing of the human being prior to birth is what's needed to save the life of the mother. Now, whether a case of something like, say, I think it's called an anencephalic pregnancy, where the child will be born, but the child won't have, say, a functioning brainstem and such, and they'll only live a few hours and die immediately. And some people say, well, should we allow abortion in that case? Yeah, I, I would say that... that it's obviously those cases are very, very uh, hard and, and incredibly sad. I feel so sorry for people that find themselves in that situation. Um, you know, the ethics of that, though, it seems to me, are the same as the ethics of treating any disabled person. In other words, if I knew that you were going to die in a few hours or a few days or a few weeks, I mean, clearly that wouldn't justify me killing you now. Right. And the fact that the human being in utero has a very serious disability, it's sad, it's horrible. I wish everyone were born perfectly healthy. But that fact, the fact of disability, does not remove basic human rights or dignity. So I think that, um, you know, in a case like that, it's best in a way to cherish the, what little life that, you know, we have with this this human being. My wife just mentioned to me recently, she read an article about a case just like this, and they chose to, um, you know, allow the baby to continue living, and then the baby was born, and, and of course died uh, not too far after that. But 
you know, in a way, that was a very healing process that the mother reported um, after after it was all done. I mean, it was a way of really making the best out of a really horrible and tragic situation. Uh, and so, you know, my heart goes out to people that, that have those difficult cases. It really is difficult. But I do think that the right response to uh, human beings in need is never to kill, uh, but always to care. And then we move from hard cases for critics. You got some for defenders of abortion. Well, I think it's interesting is the idea of sex selection. Because right now, in China, for instance, you're allowed to have one baby per family. And a lot of men over there are wanting sons so they can, pra- so they can pass on the family name. And they'd even be willing to kill, in many cases, a daughter so they could be allowed to have another kid. And this can present a problem for abortionists because, you know, you're talking about things like women's rights and such where sex selection abortion allows you to cure someone just because they happen to be female or for any other reason whatsoever. Yeah, that's a good point. The, um, the fact is that I think abortion really doesn't support female equality. It actually undermines female equality. Because, um, you know, most abortions, a majority of abortions, are of uh, human beings in utero who are female. And then a majority of infanticide, of killing newborn babies. A majority of those babies are baby girls. So I think, you know, if we're in favor of, of uh, equality, of female equality, uh, you know, at least for all females, well, then that leads not to supporting abortion, but rather to... Uh, condemning abortion, because it's by means of abortion and post-birth abortion that many female human beings lose their lives. And then that abortion can often take place for frivolous reasons. I mean, this is, we have a case where it says the health of a mother is in jeopardy, but the health of a mother could be anything like, I'm going to feel really depressed if I have this baby, or anything like that. And, And it becomes any reason can become a reason for abortion. Yeah, in the, the famous Supreme Court case, Doe versus Bolton, uh, it defined health um, in a very, very broad way. So basically, you know, mental distress can count as a quote-unquote health reason uh, for, getting, uh, for getting an abortion. Uh, I do think, though, that um, in a sense the tide is turning in, the, in that I think many people really do recognize that abortion, even if they favorite in some cases, I think more and more people are recognizing this is really ethically problematic. Uh, and I think part of it is technology, that there's more, you know, ultrasound and people have, uh, you know, the ability to see in utero and to understand the development of the human being in utero. And I think all that contributes to making um, abortion more ethically problematic for people. Uh, I also postulated this with my guest last week, and maybe you might have some Data on this, but one reason that the tide seems to be turning that more and more people are becoming pro-life, I think, could be because these are the people who are born, and they could quite likely be more prone to be raised with pro-life values because, obviously, to some extent, their parents value life. Whereas, we could say, in essence, the pro-abortion side is killing itself off, and here we have a kind of survival of fitness, fitness taking place. Yeah, I, I, I think there is some evidence that people who are pro-life tend to have more kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you wonder if that will, um, over time, have a uh, you know, beneficial effect in terms of uh, swinging public opinion. 
Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. You know, with the, the issue of abortion, as you know, of course, people do change their minds on this. So there are many people who are uh, pro-life who become pro-choice. People that are pro-choice become pro-life. So I don't think it kind of guarantees it just because um, pro-life people on general, in general have more kids um, that over time, you know, the pro-life side is going to you know, prevail in this. Um, but I don't think it hurts either. Yeah. Uh, I think you mentioned Bernard Matheson already, and he, he ran abortion clinics and is now pro-life. And then even the lady who was originally the Roe, I think, in the Roe versus Wade, she's now pro-life as well. That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, there are a lot of, a lot of cases like that. Um, people who, you know, thought about the issue carefully and uh, you looked in the evidence and then said, you know, um, I think really the ethics of inclusion is the way to go, that we should really extend protection and respect to all human beings, not just them. Mm-hmm. Now, one slogan that abortion activists use quite often, and you've got something on here, it, and I've never really understood it. It's because like I said, we want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. And I'm seeing something that if abortion isn't actively killing a human being, why would you care if it was rare? Yeah, no, I think there is a kind of tension there, a kind of problem where, um, you know, like people who are in favor of contraception, right? I don't, I've never heard anyone say, well, contraception should be safe, legal, and rare. Uh, you know, contraception is not killing anyone. So, so why does it matter whether it's rare or used all the time? I, I don't quite see the the logic of the position. I mean, if if you really embrace the, the pro-choice view, um, the standard one at least, you say, well, look, the fetus is just a clump of cells. Does it matter at all? And I don't see any reason why abortion shouldn't be gotten, you know, all the time. And what's what's wrong with it? There's no there's no ethical issue with it really. To go back a little bit to the whole idea of partial birth. And we've gone through recently one of the most craziest campaigns in American history, but something I'm very glad that Trump managed to do, that uh, it doesn't matter if you like him or hate him at this point, but what he did manage to do was, I'm not sure if you saw it, but in the third presidential debate, he got Hillary Clinton to state on the live stage what partial birth abortion was and defend it as well. Yeah, I remember that. That was um, a very uh, memorable part of of the debate, and the the position defended by Secretary Clinton, uh, you know, and defended in, in general by the Democratic Party, really is quite radical. It's not just that abortion should be legal just in the first you know few weeks of pregnancy, and then you know not legal after that. The the view is that it should be legal all the way through. Uh, not, you know, completed birth. So it's really quite a radical view, and I think it's quite out of step with the views of the vast majority of Americans. Yeah, something I did say, though, is that there are times that even that procedure could be necessary to save the life of a mother. And I think there are a lot of gynecologists who uh, spoke out at that point and were kind of saying, no, no. At that point, there aren't any, there, there, there isn't anything like that. I mean, what did you think when you heard that? Yeah, well, the American Medical Association has addressed this issue, and the American Medical Association said that there is no reason to use this procedure in order to save the life of the mother. Uh, in fact, the procedure is more dangerous for the mother uh, than just finishing up the birth, because at that point, the baby is, um, you know, almost born. And so, so it's introducing... 
some additional dangers for her health to try to perform that procedure at that time. What do you think? Why do you think conscience matters so much when we're talking about abortion? Well, there are some people who propose the idea that doctors and nurses should be forced uh, to perform abortions or to assisted abortions, and I think this is really problematic in part because it's a real corruption of uh, the purpose of medicine. Uh, the purpose of medicine is to restore health, and uh, killing a, a human being obviously is uh, the reverse of restoring health. This is inflicting the very most grave uh, deficiency of health that's possible, right? A loss not just of healthy functioning, but a loss of any functioning whatsoever. So I worry about um, a medical uh, practice that could be tempted to uh, force doctors to perform abortions. And, and if that happens, it's going to harm the medical practice in uh, a number of ways. One of those ways is that, you know, if really it becomes where to be a doctor you have to do abortions, there'll be a lot of people who just are not going to become doctors, right? Who will just say, well, if that's what they're going to force me to do, I'm just not going to enter that profession. And because people of faith are disproportionately pro-life, and uh, because Latinos and African Americans are disproportionately people of faith, in effect what's going to happen is uh, a medical profession with fewer Latinos and fewer African Americans. And I, again, I don't think that that is something that most people of goodwill uh, look forward to having. Uh, also, it would be a medical profession with fewer people of faith, and I don't think that's really a very helpful thing. So I, I, I mean, I'm concerned about attempts by some people to force doctors to uh, perform abortions. And I think it's quite bizarre, given that they say, well, we're pro-choice and we want more freedom. And then on the one hand, and then on the other hand, they're uh, in favor of forcing doctors to do things against their consciences. When it comes to it, situations like, say, for instance, the homosexual couple wearing a wedding cake made by a Christian bakery, my response has been, to say that a couple has no rights to the services or product that I or any other business has. They can do what they want with their property, but someone could say in a medical field, yeah, but you know, if you're called to go to help someone in a medical crisis, you have to go. There is no choice, man. And someone could say, isn't this the same case with abortion, that you have a medical crisis, and if you can't go out there and perform the duties, then you need to just get out of it? Yeah, well, I, I guess the, the disanalogy is that, you know, the standard line defending abortion is that this is a personal matter, this is a private choice. Right. This is, in other words, an elective decision that someone's making. So if that's true, if it's really an elective, if it's really a choice, well, then it's not like a medical necessity, like you're having a heart attack and you need to be revived. And we already talked about this before. If there is a case where a woman needs some procedure in order to save her life, right, like a you know, cancer uterus, I've already mentioned how that is ethically permissible. So what we're talking about then are the other cases. And in all those other cases, it's not a medical necessity in order to do this procedure. And so it is uh, really pretty inconsistent to say, on the one hand, this is a personal choice, and on the other hand, I want to force other people to facilitate my personal choice. Again, there's almost no other case I can think of where it's like that. I mean, if someone wants to make the personal choice of getting a big spider tattoo on their face, uh, okay, well, if they do that, I don't see why I should be forced to give them a spider tattoo. But, you know, we say that sometimes that maybe we could be in danger. I mean, there are some people who would say, like, I'm pro-life, but 
I don't want to impose my beliefs on anyone else. And currently we say the doctors are imposing their beliefs on the patients. And of course, I'm immediately thinking it's quite ironic that's the other side that's very really imposing their beliefs. But what about people who do have that concern they're imposing their own beliefs on someone else? Yeah, I, I just don't I don't see how that's that's the case. I mean, if the New York Times refuses to print my uh, op-ed opinion piece, well, they're not imposing anything on me. They're just f- refusing to cooperate with me. And that's a, that's a very different matter. So uh, the fact is people have the freedom in the United States to believe anything they want. But they don't have the freedom to force other people to go along with their beliefs. And that's exactly what's at issue in this, this case. So a pro-choice person can believe abortion's just fine. And that's not an issue. What's at issue is they want someone else to be forced to act according to their beliefs, right, against uh, maybe their own personal conscience. So, again, I'm in favor of respecting people's consciences, but forcing people to act in ways that go against their conscience seems to be the opposite of uh, freedom and liberty. Isn't that kind of part of the problem of thinking that all this is just our personal beliefs, that there's no real truth of a matter, just our beliefs about it, because in the case, at the end day, it's either what's in the womb is a living human person, or it isn't. And what you believe about that doesn't change the fact that there is some truth to it. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's certainly true. So I would uh, oppose a kind of lazy relativism where you say, well, there is no truth and all views are equally valid and things like that. Um, you know that that seems that seems correct to to you know oppose that, um, but I, but I do think that in the issue of abortion, there is uh, and not just the issue of abortion, but really any ethical issue, um, there is a kind of freedom that we shouldn't force our views on other people. In other words, if you were to try to manipulate someone or to coerce them into uh, accepting your point of view, your your beliefs. Um, that does seem to me in itself to be a kind of problematic stance. Um, so people do have different beliefs, and I think it's important to try to persuade people uh, of, uh, you know, of what, about what the truth is. But I think coercing someone or forcing someone or using, I don't know, uh, water torture techniques to make them believe what you believe, I, I do think that would also be ethically problematic. One scenario you have at the end, I think this is purely hypothetical. I don't know if this has been done yet or not. That's the idea of artificial wombs. Uh, has he, is it anyone really working on this right now? Yeah, there are. There are scientists working on it in uh, both Japan and in, in the United States. And they're hoping to create uh, an artificial uterus, an artificial womb, in which a human embryo can develop all the way through from conception all the way through, you know, nine months or so to the point where, uh, you know, birth normally takes place. So, who knows whether this will this will happen uh, sooner or later? But I imagine if, if there's a lot of uh, people working on it and money invested, you know, I imagine it probably will take place at some point. Um, so it's interesting to think about what that would mean for the abortion debate. Now, at the at the last chapter of my book, The Ethics of Abortion, I propose that if these wombs could be developed. It might be a situation in which both the pro-choice side and the pro-life side could find a satisfactory compromise. So the pro-choice side would, would get what they want in that a woman who's pregnant who doesn't want to be pregnant could simply have uh, the developing human being removed and put in this artificial uterus so she's free of pregnancy. On the other hand, the pro-life side would get what the pro-life side wants, namely 
that no human being would be intentionally killed. So this could be, at least in theory, a kind of win-win situation. Do you think there could be some problems, though, with it? Because we could pretty much, at that point, maybe even start treating human beings like commodities of sorts. Yeah, no, there are definitely issues that could, that could take place. Um, and, you know, we'd have to think carefully about that. But I'm not sure that those things necessarily would take place. So think about orphanages. Um, these were set up um, in order to take care of babies that, uh, you know, were abandoned or were placed in the orphanage and need help. And is it possible that there could be abuse of that and that, you know, people working in the orphanage could abuse the kids or do bad things? Yes, it is possible. But, um, you know, it's also possible that the people who work there could really take care of the kids and, and things could be fine. So just because something can be abused isn't necessarily a reason for you know, rejecting the use of it altogether. So I do think artificial wombs could be abused, but I think they might also be able to be used in a way that would really serve the human good rather than undermine it. How would this compare to something like, say, yeah, I think you compare it to in vivo fertilization, such as maybe like, have, like a surrogate pregnancy and such, because, I mean, do you know there are some people who have some more issues with surrogate pregnancy you think that would carry over the same way to artificial wombs? Um, it could. It depends on what exactly the objection to um, surrogate wombs is. So, I mean, one objection would be that you're creating human embryos uh, without a mother and father who are married and outside the context of marriage. So in vitro fertilization does that. Then you place the embryo in, in this woman. But in using artificial uteruses in terms of abortion, that, that whole situation isn't taking place. In other words, it's not that um, the embryos were created in the lab. These were created, you know, in the normal way. And then once the child's conceived, then the question is, well, we have a new human being in existence. What is the most just, humane way of responding, right? And arguably, at least, both the pro-choice and the pro-life side might agree, well, the best way to respond to this difficult situation would be to uh, have the child be in an artificial uterus. And that seems to be, again, kind of giving both sides in the dispute, uh, maybe not everything they'd like, but something that they like. And, and therefore, it might be a kind of reasonable compromise. I think it's interesting. I began this interview talking about the question of, is this a religious issue? And aside from when I talk about, about let's say, the idea that God is the biggest abortionist of all, and your statement that Christians can believe in beings that are persons but not humans, nothing that we've said whatsoever has relied on religion at all. We haven't pointed to a statement from a Catholic authority like the Pope. We haven't made anything about a statement from Scripture or anything like that. Like we could say, the arguments we gave, they could have been given by an atheist, a Muslim, a Hindu, whoever. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't, again, I don't think that um, the issue of abortion is an issue that needs to be decided on any principles of faith or revelation or uh, scripture or, or anything like that. It seems to me that what you need is a scientific uh, principle, namely that uh, a human being in utero is a human being, is a member of our species, is living, and then you need an ethical principle. And the ethical principle is that all human beings deserve respect. And you put these two principles together and you have um, the pro-life position. So neither one of these principles is one that is 
uh, you know, unique to religious believers, that you know, only people of faith believe in this or that. Uh, people of goodwill of any faith and of no faith can believe in the science and can believe in the basic ethical principle that all human beings deserve basic human rights. You know, since you mentioned the science, uh, I think something interesting I've thought about this is that as someone who debates atheists pretty regularly, it always usually comes down to whether you have scientific evidence or your position on miracles is against science, 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 and yet when it comes to the question of abortion, I mean, the science, I think, is pretty clear that human life begins at conception, and that then for so many people of the science is thrown out and the few they don't care as much for philosophy is suddenly brought in to do all the work for them. Yeah, yeah, well I think informed participants in the abortion debate don't uh, deny, you know, scientific evidence about, you know, prenatal human life. But they turn rather to philosophy and they say, well, okay, not all human beings deserve respect. Only human beings that are conscious or... Uh, self-aware, or able to communicate, or able to reason, or whatever. Um, and that's fine. I mean, I, I don't think it's reasonable to deny scientific evidence that's well established. But scientific evidence doesn't give us everything we need for um, ethical debate. And the reason's pretty clear, right? That science doesn't um, extend itself to properly ethical questions, right? Science is about what is the case. And ethics is often about what ought to be the case, what we should do, right? We can't determine, as a matter of science, whether murder is wrong, whether stealing is wrong. A scientist can say, well, stealing takes place this often, or stealing is more likely to occur in this context or that context. But science as science just doesn't say anything about the ethics or morality of theft, whether it's wrong to steal or whether it's okay to steal. Um, it just doesn't say anything about that. So we need more than science to come to a, uh, any ethical conclusion. Well, we don't really have time for another question, unfortunately. But, again, I'm going to ask a brief one. What do you hope people get out of this book when they read it? Well, I, I'd be happy if people you know, took away uh, a deeper knowledge of this issue, and I'd be happy if they uh, were able to uh, think through it maybe a little bit more clearly and to consider you know, different things perhaps than they've thought of before. So, you know, I, I, for me at least, I, I think it's important to uh, talk about this issue and to try to, you know, share perspectives and to learn from one another. So if people uh, have gotten that, then that'd be great. Wait, if anyone's interested in my book, I will tell you it is a little bit pricey. I'm looking at Amazon right now. The paperback is 3803 to 4470, and the Kindle version is 4246. So if you want it, I mean, you can do that. I got mine at the library and read it and worked just as well, but it is an excellent book. I do recommend that you get it. And Dr. Kazor, if someone's been intrigued by this interview and wants to find out more about you and your work, you have a blog, a website, an email, where they can get in touch. Uh, sure, yeah. I have a, a website, which is uh, faculty.lmu.edu backslash ckazor. That's kind of a long website. But if you just Google my name, Christopher Kazer, K-A-C-Z-O-R, you'll see uh, you know, my website. I'm on Facebook, too. People can look me up that way. Um, but, yeah, I've uh, uh, been happy to talk to you, and I hope that people are able to you know, think about this issue a little bit more clearly, I hope. Well, 
Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience? Um, well, I guess just that I, I hope that if there are people of faith, they can pray for a just uh, resolution to all these matters. And if there are not people of faith, then I wish them well and uh, hope that people of goodwill can work together towards a, a just resolution of these matters. Yeah, and if you're not a person of faith, I recommend listening to some of the other episodes I've done here and maybe some of your issues with faith will be answered. Uh, Dr. Kayser, it's been great having you here and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Oh, thank you very much, Nick. I can remind everyone, next week, Brian Johnson's on talking about abortion again. For now, I'm Nick Peters and I'm signing off.